It's probably time for us to start. Before Christmas, we spent four evenings thinking about emotions, and now we're coming back to this to think about some specific emotions. And today, we're going to consider anger. And before we do that, we better pray. Father, as we consider what we're going to be talking about, maybe some of us are already feeling guilty about our anger. Some of us may be thinking now about other people's anger and feeling self-righteous. So wherever we stand on this, I pray that you'll help us in this time that we have to think carefully about this subject, this emotion, that in one way or another does touch on all of us almost every day. So we pray that you'll give us insight into our own hearts, into ourselves, and into the perfect plan that you have for each of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a hot topic, and the book that I find most helpful on this, which has appropriately got a red cover, is called Good and Angry. It's by David Paulison, and I highly recommend it. You'll notice that I'll be quoting from it a lot in this time. If you're interested in this and you want me to uh, get you a copy or, or you want to have a look at it, you can do that afterwards. We'll think about this in four bits. First of all, what is anger? We have to start with that. Then, what is good about God's anger? Third, what's the problem with my anger and yours? And then fourth, we'll think about getting anger right. So first of all, what is anger? The first thing that might come to our minds is the physical side of anger. When we're angry, our bodies are in a heightened state of alertness. Adrenaline is pumping. We heat up. We tighten up. Without even realizing it, your tone of voice might change, your volume might go up, your facial expression alters. Anger is a state of physical tension. You feel angry. It's a passion. Think of the ways we describe an angry person. He was hot under the collar. He had smoke coming out of his ears. She was ready to explode. She was livid. Livid is actually a word for skin discoloration. But we use it to describe angry people because their skin does change color. There's no doubt when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers at the temple, his face changed color. But all those physical things are byproducts of anger. They're symptoms. So what is anger? Listen carefully to this definition. Anger expresses, I'm against that. It is an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. You notice something, size it up and say, that matters and it's not right. You encounter something in your world that crosses the line. Anger expresses the energy of your reaction to something that you find offensive and wish to eliminate. Hopefully, as we read that, we can see the importance of anger. 
As we'll see in a moment, God is angry, and he is right to be. He looks at so much in this world and says, that matters, and it's not right. You and I are made in God's image, and that means we have the same capacity to be displeased when things are wrong and want to put them right. When things are not the way they're supposed to be, we want to do something about it. Romans chapter 12 commands us to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And if we do hate evil, it will make us angry. Anger always makes a value judgment. Anger is always a moral matter. It has rightly been called the moral emotion because it makes a statement about what matters. Like God, you come wired to size things up, to feel displeasure at wrong, and to act in order to do something about it. Would you want to live in a world with no value judgments? Not on your life. When the standard of judgment is accurate and the way of reacting is constructive, then clear-minded, hearty disapproval is one of the best things going. If you are indifferent or approving toward child abusers, terrorists, or cheats, you would be morally defective. Moral sanity must disapprove of wrong, and that disapproval is the essence of anger. Anger disapproves of wrong, and there is plenty of wrong in our world. The opposite of anger is apathy. Apathy is indifference. It's a lack of interest or concern. When you and I are apathetic, we have no enthusiasm. But anger is enthusiastic. It's full of interest and concern. It wants to put things right. And so Paulison says, anger breaks out into behavior. And that behavior, whether words or deeds, is about conflict and combat. Anger goes into action as a military operation. It's about winning or losing, identifying enemies and allies, attacking and defending. You do and say things in order to change things. You attack the problem. Anger says, I'm against that, and then does something about it. And that can be an entirely good and righteous thing. It is in God's case. So let's think now about what's good about God's anger. We're all familiar with the term, the wrath of God. And Paulison says, the God of the Bible happens to be the best known angry person in all history and literature. No other person in history has ever allowed his or her anger to be so carefully detailed and held up for public inspection. No book ever written tells us so much about one person's anger and portrays it as essentially and coherently good. The Bible is a case study in the inner workings and the outworking of healthy anger. And what we find is that God's anger flows from his love. He is the angriest person in the Bible because he is the most loving person in the Bible. His anger flows from his love. He's angry because he cares deeply and powerfully. 
His love is intense, and so he must get angry at wrong. A God without anger would be a God without love. Many people have this this idea of God. They picture God as some kind of floppy, hippie in the sky who's tolerant and accepting of everything. A God who gets angry at nothing. But nothing could be more horrible. A God who's so apathetic he is against nothing. Never willing to say that matters and it's wrong. Do we want our politicians to be like that? No, we don't. And thank God he is not like that himself. He does care, and he cares because he loves. He is rightly hostile to evils because true wrongs hurt people and kill joy. Tim Chester says, Good anger is an emotional response to the right things, sin and injustice, in the right way, controlled and desiring good. And that is the kind of anger we see in God. And we see it in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not a hippie. He didn't glide around Galilee with flowers in his hair, making peace signs at everyone. He cared about the people he met. And the situations he encountered. And he got angry when he saw and heard things that were not right. Here's an example from Mark chapter 3. Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? But they remained silent. He looked round at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus was angry that the Pharisees only cared about catching him out. They couldn't care less about the man's situation. But notice what Jesus did in his anger. He acted to heal the man, not to defend himself. That's what good anger does. It is not self-centered. And in fact, Mark tells us what Jesus did here actually made his own situation far worse. The Pharisees hated him all the more for calling them out in public. Jesus shows it is possible to say that's wrong and yet express our displeasure in ways that prove truly constructive. Jesus was a redemptive troublemaker. Truth is always a troublemaker. It involves anger on behalf of victims and in the face of victimizers. But such merciful anger always maintains its sense of proportion, its perspective, and its constructive purpose. And in the end, Jesus' anger at wrong led him to the cross. Jesus dealt constructively with the wrongs of the world by giving himself for the world. 
He put his anger to work. He attacked the problem of sin by dying to redeem sinners. So the incident we've just read about restoring the man's hand, that was a little preview of that greater work of restoration. It began at the cross and it will be completed in the new heaven and earth. When Romans 8 tells us the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glory and freedom of the children of God. That is what anger can achieve when it flows from perfect love and when it has a constructive purpose. And God's anger has all of that all of the time. But the same cannot be said for our anger. So let's ask, what's the problem with my anger and yours? Do I have an anger problem? Yes, I do. Do you? Yes, again. Our problem is we tend to either feel the wrong kind of anger or we don't feel the right kind of anger. We're apathetic and detached when we should be engaged. We don't care when we should care. Sometimes not getting angry is a problem. Let's think about the kind of anger that we do tend to feel. Here's the definition of anger we already looked at earlier. Anger expresses, I'm against that. It is an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. You notice something, size it up and say, that matters and it's not right. You encounter something in your world that crosses the line. Anger expresses the energy of your reaction to something that you find offensive and wish to eliminate. You and I get angry about what matters to us. And so often... What matters most to us is getting our own way. So often the attitude of our heart is, my kingdom come, my will be done. And when that is our heart attitude, we're going to get angry when someone or something gets in the way of our will being done. If anger expresses, I'm against that, then so often what I'm against is anything that hinders me getting my own way. Isn't that what road rage is all about? I want to get to this place, I want to get there by this time, and I want to get there without any hassle, and this idiot in front of me is messing up my plans. He just hesitated for two seconds at the green light. So I'm going to blast the horn at him, and I'm going to add a few hand signals as well, just for good measure. Here's how James puts it in the New Testament. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Of course, we listen to James and we're all very quick to say, well, I'd never kill anyone. Maybe not. But our quarreling and our fighting and our irritability has the same DNA as murder. It all comes from my frustration at not getting what I want. 
That's what Jesus said. He said, whether you actually kill someone or whether you call them a fool or refuse to talk to them and sit around brooding about them, dreaming up ways to cut them down to size, all of that stems in us from the same murderous attitude. The person I'm angry at is a hindrance to my kingdom. They're a roadblock in the path to my will being done. And so they deserve judgment and wrath. And I'm going to give it to them. Then, of course, if you and I have a quarrel, we're having a clash of our two kingdoms. When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my right preoccupy me. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdoms we establish. You're so stupid. You've gotten in my way. You don't get it. You're a hindrance to my agenda. What's the root of all of this? It's pride. The conviction that my agenda matters most. Nothing is more important than me getting what I want. Pride is the root of every sin because in our pride we want to be God. That was the root of Adam and Eve's sin in the beginning. Satan said to them, eat the fruit and you'll be like God. And Adam and Eve said, oh yes, we'll have some of that. Our sinful anger traces back to that same root of pride. My anger at you, not only my cutting and defensive words, but the dismissive attitude, the negative, damning spin I put on everything you did, the positive, justifying spin I put on my own performance, the evasions, the self-righteous and self-pitying emotions and thoughts, all these and more expresses my diabolical pride against God and my restless demand for what I want. Anger goes wrong when you get God-like. Your desires become divine law. Poke your way into every example of bad anger and you'll find God playing. This is what I want. My will be done. And in case it seems like I'm pointing the finger a little bit too much, let me give you a personal example. A few years after Megan and I were married, I started to realize slowly the day of the week that I was the most irritable was my day off. That seems odd. Every other day I had responsibilities. On my day off, I could do what I wanted. It was my day. And that was exactly the problem. I was thinking of it as my day. The day for my will to be done. So if anyone or anything encroached on that day or asked anything of me or took up time, I resented it and I got moody about it. That resentment and moodiness was anger gone wrong. I think since I realized that, I've been getting over it. So if you see me on a Wednesday... You can talk to me. I won't get angry with you. 
Here's what we've learned so far then. Anger in and of itself is a good thing. We have the capacity to be angry because we were made in the image of God. We were created to get upset about what is wrong and harmful. Anger is there to motivate us. So we do something about wrong and harmful things. It gives us the energy to bring light and truth and justice into the situation. That is what godly anger does. But, as we've just been thinking about, sin distorts my anger and your anger. We get angry and vicious about petty, selfish things. And instead of wanting to put things right, we just want to get even. Or to put others down, or to win an argument at all costs. Or just to lash out. Either opening my lungs and yelling at someone, or even smashing something or someone. Winston Smith says, The angry person's world is full of idiots, jerks, and selfish people who don't play fair. If you find that you always seem to be surrounded by fools everywhere you go, beware. Why? Because when we're convinced we're surrounded by idiots, it probably means we're way too focused on our will being done. So David Powlison and Alistair Groves sum up the situation like this. Your anger is both brilliant and appalling. Your anger is godlike to the degree you treasure justice and fairness and are alert to betrayal and falsehood. Your anger is devil-like to the degree you play God and are petty, merciless, whiny, argumentative, willful, and unfair. Anger at its best communicates protective love for what God loves. At its worst, anger conveys unadulterated self-interest and issues an ultimatum. Obey my law and my will or suffer my wrath. Why should you and I care about this? Why should we want to deal with our sinful anger? I'll give you four simple reasons. Number one, it's sin. Number two, it hurts people around you. It is no fun at all living with and tiptoeing around an angry person every day. And three, it hurts you. Being eaten up with bitterness and resentment is miserable. Those who live in a regular state of anger, feeling morally superior and punishing those who disagree, end up driving people away till the angry person stands alone at the center of a relational circle of scorched earth. Surely none of us want that. The fourth reason to deal with sinful anger is this. It prevents us getting angry in godly ways about things that are truly worth getting angry about. When I'm consumed with my will being done, I have no energy left to care about God's will being done. So let's spend the rest of our time thinking about getting anger right. The worst thing you and I can do with anger is to try and forget about it and hope it goes away. It won't. 
Matthew Elliott says, anger should never just be stuffed back inside. Sinful and destructive anger cannot be healed without dealing with the feelings head on. And as Christians, you and I are concerned with a lot more than just anger management. We know the solution isn't just to learn a technique so we avoid the worst manifestations of our anger. We know that emotions flow from our hearts, so we want to tackle this at the heart level, not just the surface level. I haven't really made much progress at all if I stop smashing things, but I'm still living for my will to be done. All that means is I'm now a more socially acceptable angry person. So here are four aspects of dealing with sinful anger. First, we must learn to own it. All of us have excuses for our sinful anger. Just think about the ways we apologize for being angry. I'm sorry I yelled at you, but you were being so annoying. What we're really saying there is, I want you to forgive me for yelling at you, but I also want you to admit I was totally justified in yelling at you. Or, I'm sorry I snapped at you, it's just that I'm having a stressful time at work. In other words, you can't really hold me accountable for my anger. It's not my fault. It's all those idiots at work who keep getting in my way. Or, I'm sorry I exploded and said those nasty things about you, but it's just the way that I deal with things. I just get it off my chest and then I move on. I didn't really mean it. In other words, it's not really serious. It's just my way of sorting things out. And if you're hurt by all those better things I said, then you're just being way too sensitive and unreasonable. These are the kind of excuses we make. But the first step to getting anger right is to stop making excuses for a sinful anger and acknowledge it for what it is. And that will involve being willing to admit that anger involves more than just angry outbursts. Alistair Groves and Winston Smith explain this point. They're uh, Christian counselors. And they say, we have heard people countless times say something like, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated or irritated or annoyed. But do not be deceived. Frustration, irritation, and annoyance are anger. Frustration, irritation, and annoyance all come from the sense that I'm against that. That's not right. And we also have to admit that passive aggression is anger too. When someone is passive aggressive, they're not going to bang on the table or throw their chair through the window. Their aggressive anger comes out in the way that they withdraw. So they cut others off. They give them the cold shoulder and the silent treatment. They sulk. And when they do say something, it's to make a cutting remark. Cynical comments intended to put the other person down. Maybe accompanied with a theatrical rolling of the eyes and a big sigh. All of that can be done without ever raising our voice at all. It's passive in that sense, but it is aggression nonetheless. 
If you and I are going to deal with our anger, we have to admit that our withdrawal and our biting comments are anger as well. It's possible to be the quietest person in the room and at the same time the angriest person. And we have to admit that complaining is anger. Paulison says, obviously not all of us are consumed by explosive or implosive hostility, but all of us are tempted to grumble. That is the tiny cone and seedling from which giant redwoods grow. Major sins are only minor sins grown up. Complaining has the same DNA as violent rage. Why is it so important to own our anger, even to admit that our grumbling and sulking is anger? Because it's sin, because it hurts people around us, and because it hurts us. Wouldn't we all agree with Paulus and when he says, you want something better out of life than simply becoming one more complainer and cynic? Which of us here would ever say, What I want from life is to be a whiner. My ambition is to be a bitter, bitter, cynical complainer. That's what I'm hoping to be. I want to develop into a grumpy old man or woman. Somebody who radiates disappointment with life and with other people. That's not what we want. Don't we want to be men and women who bring a freshness and a life and a peace wherever we go? Don't we want to bring brightness and hope to the things that we're involved in, the relationships we're in? So then, if that is what we want, instead of excusing our anger, we have to own it so we can begin to deal with it. Then having owned it, we must learn to examine it. We have to ask, why exactly am I angry at this moment? What is it that's eating away at me? What is it that's got under my skin? And at one level, the honest answer might be, I'm angry because I just spilled this coffee on my shirt. Or I'm angry because the kids are messing about and now we're going to be late for church. That is one answer to why I'm angry, but usually it's not the main reason. Often, anger brings far more than current events onto the table. Anger isn't necessarily a cause and effect reaction to one particular event. Often, there's a cumulative effect to life's disappointments and frustrations. So we might want to ask ourselves, am I living with this sense that life has let me down? It hasn't turned out the way I expected it to? Is that why I always seem to have this dull anger smoldering away in the background? If that's the case, then we have to ask ourselves another question. What were my expectations for life? Were they biblical expectations? Did I properly factor in the reality that the world is broken and everyone in the world is flawed? In serious ways? Am I constantly frustrated? Because I'm expecting actually to live in a world that's not broken with people who are not flawed. So brokenness keeps 
taking, my, taking me by surprise. Have unrealistic expectations turned me into an angry person? Or if we go back to something we thought about earlier, when we get angry, we can ask ourselves, am I angry here because my will is not being done? Do I want to be God without even realizing it? And someone or something is getting in my way here? Then when you and I examine our anger, there will be times when we can say, actually, my anger here is justified. It is right to get angry about this situation. Of course, that's always going to be our initial thought. We never get angry about something we think is okay. But sometimes, even after we've considered it carefully, we can still say, yes, there's a genuine wrong here. It's appropriate for me to be against this. It's not just me playing God. But even then, even in those situations, we must learn to slow down. Because when we're angry, we do want to slow down. We want to rush in. Why wait? In fact, rushing in can become a pattern. It can be second nature to us. And so can withdrawing when we're angry. Some of us might say, I just shut myself off. That's how I respond. That's what I'm like. So if our pattern is to go straight to passive aggression, we have to force ourselves to slow down with that as well. And Winston Smith explains why. Anger is often pushing to get to the front of the line. But we all know how badly things often go when we let anger speak first. We tend to make assumptions and launch accusations at the other person, which only lead to defensiveness and a counterattack from the other. Anger doesn't have to be that way, but when we let it push its way to the front of the line, it tends to displace all the other emotions that help us connect initially. Compassion, concern, and patience. Anger that you act on instinctively without thinking it through is so likely to be sinful and godless that you might as well say always. If you want to live out of righteous anger, you need to start by slowing down. You will almost never go wrong by pausing before you act when you're angry. Anger in the raw, like radioactive uranium, is deadly unless harnessed with exquisite caution. If you bring it out into the open without careful preparation, you will poison everything within a 10-mile radius. If we turn to the first chapter of James, we find James making the same point. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, he urges. And one very good reason for us to slow down is that we may well have misunderstood the situation in front of us. Text messages and emails are notoriously easy to misunderstand. That's because we're guessing at the other person's tone. We can't hear them speaking. We're guessing about their attitude as they wrote the message. We can't see their body language. But even when we see or hear something directly, it's still important to pause and ask, am I sure that is what they meant? Or does this line up with how this person tends to treat me and others in general? If you have any doubt at all, slow down and follow up in hope 
that you've misunderstood. Wrestling to keep your anger at bay until you're sure. Then as we're learning to slow down, we must learn to respond constructively, not destructively. When you and I are angry, it takes no effort to respond destructively. It's the easiest thing in the world to lash out or bite back or cut someone off and withdraw from them. And earlier we saw why that's so easy. It's because our anger is distorted by sin. And instead of wanting to put things right, we just want to get even. And for a second or two, it feels really good to lash out or to refuse to answer someone when they speak to us. And we want to feel good when we're angry. So it takes serious commitment to go against that desire and make the hard effort to respond constructively. And just to be clear, responding constructively does not mean that we agree with everything. It does not mean we swallow our anger and just say that, oh, everything's okay. It does not mean we leave things to go on as they are. If we're angry at something we should be angry about, it will mean that we must disagree or make a complaint or push for change. But this is about the way we do those things. There are constructive and destructive ways. Alistair Groves is helpful with this. He says, make no mistake, action, albeit a carefully controlled and constructive action, is the right and good goal of anger. Righteousness does not mean doing nothing. Once you've taken your heart to the Lord and to your brothers and sisters as best you can, in other words, you've slowed down and made sure you're understanding the situation accurately, and this is something you ought to be against, then you are called to act with redemptive, merciful boldness. Remember, God's anger is fiercer than yours or mine ever could be. Yet look what he does with it. He disciplines his children in order to bring us back. He rebukes in order to convict our hearts and turn us to repent. Our God ultimately poured out his wrath on Christ, unleashing his fury without restraint one time and one time only, so that those with whom he is angry might be restored. True love attacks evil with vigor, and yet the attack is always a rescue mission. Our God is never bitter, petty, or cruel. So then for you and me, what is involved in a constructive response? Patience. Patience does not mean being passive or indifferent. It means we're prepared to work at the situation, not just try to blow it up. In fact, patience hurts. It is hard to learn. You struggle within yourself so that you don't react immediately in the wrong way. You bear with difficult people and events, not out of indifference, resignation, or cowardice. You hang in there because you are driven by a different purpose. You are willing to work slowly to solve things. Patience is not passivity. It is how to be purposeful and constructive in the face of great difficulties. By definition, patience means that what's wrong doesn't change right away. 
A constructive response also involves forgiveness. What David Powlison calls the willingness not to get even. Forgiveness does not ignore what's wrong. It does not excuse what's wrong. It does not pretend that the person didn't really mean it. Instead, recognizing that a debt is owed, it forgives the debt. Forgiveness names wrong for what it is and feels the sting. Then it consciously acts unfairly in return. Anger is all about fairness, but forgiveness is mercifully unfair. You choose not to give back what only seems fair, just, equitable, or reasonable. Now, in one sense, we can only forgive someone if they seek our forgiveness. But in another sense, we can work to have an attitude of forgiveness to the point where whatever the other person's attitude is, we let go of our bitterness and our desire for revenge instead of taking it out on the other person. And then if forgiveness means we don't give the other person what they deserve, charity goes a step further than that and gives the other person what they do not deserve. They deserve payback, but we give them kindness. We do them good in some meaningful way. In Romans 12, Paul says, Do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what God is doing. That is the big plan God is unfolding in the world. And you and I can be part of it in our own tiny little ways as we choose to pay back evil with good. And sometimes we have to start a constructive conflict. That's what Jesus did when he went into the temple, made a whip and started kicking over the tables. He took the initiative to kick something off in order to put something right. His father's house was being abused. Constructive anger enters forcefully into conflict in order to redeem. It means a willingness to start a a necessary conflict in order to solve a real problem. It means a willingness to pursue necessary justice. You raise the problem that wrong creates. Do that in the right kind of way and you create the right kind of trouble. You and I can be great at starting destructive conflict when we don't get our own way, but this is not about me getting my own way. It's about, as Paulison says, pursuing necessary justice. And to give you an example of that, in the 1960s in America, Martin Luther King started a constructive conflict over racial injustice. It didn't involve rioting. It didn't involve terrorism. But it did involve civil disobedience. Protest that was peaceful, yet illegal. And when Martin Luther King was arrested, he didn't resist arrest. He took the consequences for his redemptive troublemaking. But he didn't stop. He kept pushing and he kept insisting that things had to change. And they did have to change. 
Constructive conflict is the only merciful alternative to giving up in exhaustion, disgust, or fear. It's the merciful alternative to papering problems over with mere politeness. It's not out to destroy like raw anger. It's out to make something good out of something bad. Our usual responses are either, I don't like that, I don't care, or I like that. These three easy responses come naturally. The hardest, best response is, I don't like that, I care, and I will act in constructive love. To respond constructively to trouble is a fine art gained through long practice. That's the key. This does not come easily to any of us. We've all learned ungodly habits of responding to one degree or another. It takes time for us to relearn. We have to practice if we're going to be angry in a constructive way. So let me finish with three brief points. Number one, if we're going to make progress in this, we will have to grow in humility. We have to take the log out of our own eye before we blow our top about the speck in our brother or sister's eye or our spouse or children's eye or our neighbor's eye or boss's eye or teacher's eye or parent's eye. We have to seek God's will and God's kingdom rather than our own. That kind of proper humility will help our anger to go right. But then second, some of you might be thinking, as I've been saying all this, it's all very well what you're saying, but I suffered a wrong that I will never get over. I suffered a genuinely significant abuse in my life, a right royal injustice. I cannot forget what was done to me and I will never get over it. I think about a lady in one of the CCPAS training videos that we used in in previous years for child protection training. This lady was speaking about abuse that she had suffered decades before. The, The video didn't focus on her face. It just showed her in her kitchen furiously slicing carrots. I've never seen someone do that with such anger and aggression. And as she did that, she was speaking to the interviewer saying, I am still angry at what happened to me decades ago. How do we deal with that as Christians? Well, we begin to deal with it by saying, yes, I may never get over what was done to me. I may never forget it. I may have that scar forever as part of who I am. And that is not my fault. It doesn't mean I'm a failure because I can't get over it. But I can choose how I respond now, today. I think David Powlison is helpful when he says, yes, the experience will always be there. But you do not need to be forever defined by what happened. You won't forget, but you do not need to endlessly revisit what happened. 
The pain and hatred and despair do not need to remain a running sore infected by rage, mistrust, and callousness. There is a way to go through it and come out in a good place. Great suffering puts a fork in the road. And you will choose. The choice is between the way of bitterness and the way of grace and mercy. God is also angry about what happened to you. He is angry at all injustice, every betrayal, any time wrongs are done to another. God doesn't want you to just get over it or to gloss over what you have suffered as if it didn't really matter. He wants you to become merciful, purposeful, hopeful. That process takes time. And so, third, for every one of us, it's worth repeating, getting our anger right is a learning process. It's a lifetime's work. So don't give up if you go home this evening and get it wrong again. Keep going because it's worth it. I'm going to finish with some words from Martin Luther, which might be helpful to us. Martin Luther was a man who knew all about the struggle to get anger right. He didn't always get it right. But he said this for the Christian man or woman. This life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. God is working in us. Despite all of our failures, And so we can commit ourselves with hope to becoming the kind of people he wants us to be. That's all I've planned to say. We do have a a few minutes before our uh, allotted time. So you may have a question or a, a query that was raised, something that wasn't raised that should have been.